0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is convict leasing. We'll begin this episode with a quick recap on what is happening in American history during this time. We'll define convict leasing and then begin to dive into the effects and evolution of convict leasing into our current times. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, paint the picture for us. What's happening in America? What's going on? And before we actually get into what convict leasing is.
2: So I think it's important to understand just how devastated the South was after the Civil War. Because that's kind of the context. So during the Civil War, there were 300,000 white men in the South who lost their lives fighting the Civil War. Um, And 300,000, that's like a huge loss on its own, but you have to put that in the context of, like that was a fifth of white male adults in the South. Wow. In addition to losing a fifth of their workforce, uh, of of the white men, um, the South also lost uh, half of the capital in the South was the slaves who gained their freedom, the enslaved people who, who... Their freedom. So half the GDP, half of the economy in the South just went away. And then 300,000, so a fifth of the white men died. And it would take 40 years for the Southern economy to, um, like the agricultural production would take 40 years to recover to pre Civil War levels. So the Southern economy was just in shambles. And Um, Also, the North was uh, kind of occupying the South for the period of Reconstruction uh, for about 12 years. And so there was a period during that time, there was a period of uh, relative calm. There was still like a lot of terrorism, a lot of uh, lynchings, a lot of uh, mass killings as the white Southerners tried to uh, reimpose white supremacy. Um, But it was a period where black people actually had relative freedom and the ability to start uh, establishing schools and filing for patents and um, building lives, but the South, the Southerners in the post-war era, they wanted to re-establish the closest thing that they could get to slavery. Like they, they didn't ever repent of slavery. They wanted to get back as close to it as they could, and so they came up with. Three different forms of forced labor, um, and the the main one, the worst of the three, uh, is actually uh, considered by historians to have been worse than than chattel slavery um, of the antebellum era. The worst form was convict leasing; it was the most cruel. And so that's what we're going to get into and dig into.
1: Okay, so what is it? What is or what, what are the other two forms that you kind of alluded to?
2: Yeah, so, so the other forms, one was debt slavery, in which basically uh, a black person was made to owe a white person money either through just false accusations or bec- exorbitant interest rates. And then in owing them money, um, they would force them to sign contracts that um, included like forced labor and sometimes even allowed the white person to whip them and l- chain them uh, so it was a form of re-enslavement. Okay. And then the third one was sharecropping, which wasn't actually in most cases slavery, but it was forced labor oftentimes.
1: Okay. So what what made convict leasing worse than because um, that the the first one, the debt slavery sounds pretty bad. hmm So what what what's the big differences there?
2: So in antebellum era slavery, chattel slavery, pre-Civil War, a slave was actually Um, valuable as a possession as as cruel and terrible as that is to say the value of a slave actually was some form of protection because a master didn't want to just kill a slave because again that was like half of the assets half of the wealth in the south was the enslaved people and so masters would be cruel to slaves and sometimes would kill them to make an example of them but generally speaking masters didn't want to kill their slaves during convict leasing though, basically the system of convict leasing was was the system where all kinds of laws were set up to criminalize every aspect of black life so that a white person could arrest a black person for almost anything, actually for anything. They could just make up any charge and the word of a black person was never believed against the word of a white person. Yeah. So that the only way you were safe as a black person was to have a white person to Vouch for you. Hmm. Basically, you had to have uh, to work under a white master, essentially, so that he could keep the other white people from taking your rights away. And and so then any black person was vulnerable to being accused of any crime, and all kinds of crimes were set up. That we'll get into those in a second. And then once accused, they would be convicted and could be sold, or not even sold, but leased, rented out to forced labor in slave mines, in quarries, um, in lumber yards. They would be leased out into these uh, forms of forced labor. But in it's it just like you, you think people take better care of their house if they own it than if they rent it. It was the same way where in, in these slave mines, there was literally no incentive that the, that the slave mine foreman had to keep the, the black people alive. Sometimes mortality rates were 30 to 40% per year. 30 to 40% of the least convicts would die in a given year in some of these locations. Because the foreman they rented them per month. So as long as he as long as he lives and, and you they would push them to the, the edges of human endurance to exact as much labor from them as they could possibly get. And there was, there was no reason to keep them alive. Once they die, you just rent another one. And so it was, it was completely cruel. There was uh, quotas where the, the enslaved convicts had to, um, in some of the mines, like the Pratt mines in Alabama, they had to um, remove four tons of coal every day in order not to be whipped. And they, when they were whipped, they were whipped between 30 and 100 times with, with rods on their bare backs. And then they were expected, having been whipped like that, to remove four, extract four tons of coal the next day. They would work from 3 a.m. There's, there's a testimony of one of these convicts who wrote letters out saying he would start working at 3 a.m. to 8 or 10 p.m., um, just never seeing the light of day except on Sundays, just always living underground, um, or in the dark and only seeing the light of day on
1: Sundays when they got a, a little bit of a break. Okay, so that's a little interesting because I was before you, before you even mentioned the Sunday thing, I'm thinking in my head like what where are the Christians during this time? And what are they saying? What are they doing? are there, are there people trying to stop it? And then I was you know then you said Sunday, like why did they have Sunday off? Were they given Sunday off? What's yeah, Tell me about that. I
2: mean, they were allowed, I mean, there there may have been differences on different sites, but I know for the Pratt Mines, uh, they were allowed to attend church. Like there were, these were Christians who were running these operations. And just to, to say how widespread this was, Southern governments got a full fifth of their government revenue from the lease payments of convicts they would lease them out and gained a full fifth of the government revenue from through this practice and that doesn't even factor in the actual product of the labor of the convicts the convicts built the roads and you know cleared the swamps and created the bricks and the the steel like uh, at one point back in that era uh, steel production was like um, a huge part of the economy grew to be a huge part of the economy Um, and it was black men who were in this convict leasing system who were the, like removing the the ore from the ground. And the vast majority of them were not guilty of anything. Hmm. That's the crazy thing. I mean, it, like we, you call them convicts, it's convict leasing. So we, we assume from that that these were people who had committed some kind of crime, right? But these, the, first of all, it, it was misdemeanor convict leasing. What was a huge part of it, it was these were just literally misdemeanors or, or crimes that were invented as an excuse to arrest people. But some of the crimes that that the people who were pulled into the system were guilty of were literally things like spitting on the sidewalk, cussing, gambling, uh, talking loudly in front of a white woman failing to step off the sidewalk when a white person passed by, or, or um, the, I mean, just owing money, like not having money to pay debts. But then also laws, that the black codes were formed all throughout the South where basically they they created all these laws to oppress black people. Um, and, and this is where there's like an intersection between convict leasing and sharecropping because basically in the sharecropping system, black people were exploited and they created laws that enforced that exploitation. So as a sharecropper, you—if if you were a southern black person who um, didn't have education or literacy uh, because you had been born into slavery and you weren't allowed to read or write, and all you knew was how to pick cotton, then in the sharecropping system, landowners, landlords, the white people who owned all the capital, they needed black people to work their farms because otherwise your cotton's going to go to waste. They needed black people to continue to pick the cotton, and so what they did is they they created this system called sharecropping, where they said, "Okay, we'll give you this section of land, and you'll work it, your own section of land, and then you'll give us the um, you'll split the proceeds with us. So half the cotton goes to you, half of it goes to us because we own the land. But then what happened was. The, the white landlords were super unjust and unfair. Um, the, the white landlords only allowed the, the, the sharecroppers to sell, in most cases, only allowed them to sell the cotton back to them, back to the landlord at whatever price they offered to pay for it. And the black codes, they made it a crime for black people to try to sell their cotton to someone other than the landlord. So what's going to make the, the landlord pay a fair rate if he knows that it's a crime for you to try to sell your cotton to someone else? And then they made it a crime for you as the, the sharecropper to go to another landlord and ask to be one of his sharecroppers. They they made it a crime. I mean, imagine trying to work for a boss and trying to get a raise if if he can make it a crime for you to look for employment elsewhere. They made it a crime to... <clears throat> for you to get a job somewhere else unless you had a note from your landlord releasing you from, from your work. They made it a, a, a crime to try to leave town. They made it a crime, uh, vagrancy was a crime. They made it a crime to not work on Saturdays. Wow. If black sharecroppers took Saturday off, they could be charged with vagrancy and sent to slave mines. It was a, It was a way to, it was like these, these black codes were, like, tactically precise at trying to uh, take away all leverage and power that sharecroppers had, so that they had to just sit in this unjust system. Where, I mean, and, and another part of it, the the landlords, um, the historians um, think that landlords only paid, only even kept fair books about twenty five percent of the time, like the, only, a, only a quarter of the landlords even kept fair books, where as exploitative as the system already was, like the, the black people had no leverage to demand fair prices for their cotton, um, and as exploitative as it already was, even then at the end of the year, when it comes time for settlement, only a quarter of the white landlords would even give the black people what they were due. But then there was no way to fight it. Because as soon as you tried to start to fight it, the threat that was hung over your head was that you would be charged with one of these crimes, vagrancy or one of the other crimes, and you'd be sent to the
1: slave mines and worked to death. So, how, how long did this happen? I mean, this is in the 1800s. Is that where we're at right now? Convict leasing
2: went for 80 years after the Civil War. Wow. Forced labor in America went through World War II, like it stopped, or went up to World War II. Convict really? policing stopped um, What made shortly it after stop. Pearl Harbor. Um, I think a big part of it was that in the wars, like World War II and the Cold War, America didn't want the negative PR of how we treated our black people. And so we tried to, you know, whenever the world was watching us and seeing our hypocrisy, those were the, the times when we would try to clean things up a bit. Hmm. Wow! It went, yeah, it went for 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 eighty years, and I mean, let me let me give you some of this. I, w- I want to just show you how cruel it was. Um, sorry, let me. So this is an example: is the the Pratt mines, and I'm going to read a quote here from Douglas Blackman, uh, who wrote the book "Slavery by Another Name," and, which is also a documentary. Yeah. Placed under complete control of the companies and businessmen who acquired them, the laborers suffered intense physical abuse and deprivation of food, clothing, medical care, and other basic human needs. Guards, rarely supervised, hung men by their thumbs or ankles as punishment. Convict slaves were whipped for failure to work at the rate demanded by their overseers, commonly receiving as many as 60 or 70 lashes at a time. Accounts of men lashed until skin literally fell off their backs were not uncommon. During 1888 and 1889, seven of the black laborers forced into the slope number two mine at the Pratt mines were children under the age of 10. Among 11,000, or among 1,100 men brought there, fewer than 40 had prior criminal records. Of the 116 prisoners who died, a large number were teenagers. And if you look at the death registry at the Pratt Mines, it, it lists off some of the, the supposed convicts who died there. And just reading a section of that, Arthur Easter, 12, died of unknown reasons. George Wolfork, 15, died of typhoid after being stabbed in the arm. Malachi Coleman, 16, leg mashed. Luther Medcalf died of unknown causes. John Cotton, arm off below the shoulder. Other causes of death from just one page of the death registry. Yellow fever, abscess lower jaw, shot in the neck, shot in the shoulder and finger, right eye out, skull fractured. These minds were cruel. There was there were no safety precautions because there was no incentive to keep these convicts alive. And they worked them literally to the, the point of death. And that helped fund the creation of the Southern economy. It was a huge part of the, the what created the Southern economy and industrialized it was, this this system. And then it was also used as as a stick, as a cudgel to um, oppress Black people throughout the South
1: for eighty years. Okay, I mean that's a lot and really heavy. Um, I'm assuming the reasons we didn't hear about this in school is probably just out of embarrassment and we didn't want to... We just don't want it... We don't want people to know it happened. But, I I mean, I, we, I'll probably always come back to this view that a lot of white people have is like, okay, so convict leasing ended World War II so less than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a long time ago. It's over. You know, it happened. What... Why does it, you know, it, it, it's it's illegal now. So why, why is it important to know that that happened, or or maybe like, a lot of people probably are thinking that doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. Um. So what are, talk about that. Talk about some of the effects, or you know, why is it important that we even knew that convict leasing happened?
0: Well, and I want to give some context because like, my parents picked cotton in rural um, Tennessee, and my family. Um, I mean, you know, if convict leasing ended in the 40s, I mean, there's reports that convict leasing, slavery, um, abusive sharecropping, that was going on even through the civil rights movement. I mean, people were still being kept in chains um, and being enslaved to plantation properties. So this is through my parents, like my parents... Um, were born in the 50s, and their parents, you know, that was a common, those things were very common in their parents' generation. So my grandparents' generation, that was very common. My parents were, you know, coming up through the end of that. That That's very relative. Like, that is not just something that happened, you know, long a long time ago, you know, um, in a faraway time and space, it's very, very recent. If you look at um, the impact of uh, wealth, or, or 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 yeah, the impact of of generational poverty and um, versus generational wealth and opportunity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, for our listeners over fifty, your grandparents were like, especially if you're from the south, your grandparents um, either directly or indirectly would have benefited. From the system, or if you're <clears throat> if you're African American as a listener from the South, your grandparents they were exploited by the system. Yeah, like there's like uh, I, I forget if it was slavery by another name or some somewhere else. Um, the I have this quote that the va- this is a quote from "Slavery by Another Name." The vast majority of Black people who remained in the South, and this is during mass migration. Uh, who remained in the South all the way through the 1940s were trapped in some form of exploitative system to trap them in their labor. Yeah. So, I mean, this was part of why black people today have a tenth of the wealth of white people. I mean, part of that was redlining, which we've talked about previously, but part of it was just all throughout the South, black people's labor was was... Ex- exploited they were enslaved or forced into deals where they they made no money oftentimes i mean sharecroppers um only a fifth of sharecroppers made any money at the end of a year yeah so 80% of sharecroppers at the end of the year their the landlord would call them in and say like you know hey we we had a good year um i didn't uh, i we we sold the product and it we had enough to pay for uh, the stuff like the housing and food and supplies that I rented to you. So now I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. And it would be an entire year of labor for the black people with no improvement whatsoever, 80% of the time. Or even worse would be that the, the landlord would call them in and say like, hey, we sold the cotton for uh, you know $140, um, but you owe me $170 because of all my implements that you rented and so now you owe me another $30 and it's going to be at 50% interest rate or at 50, 70 or 90% was, were like the typical interest rates that they would charge. And so then now if you're a, a sharecropper and the landlord says, you owe me this money at this exorbitant interest, like that debt would just continue to snowball and you can never get out of it. And if you tried to run, if you tried to flee up north, you were now fleeing, you were now subject to arrest because you're fleeing while you owe him money yeah and so then you could be sent to the slave mines or he could say that you owe him money and then take you to court for some offense and then just uh, oftentimes what would happen and this was kind of like one of the other f- forms of entrapment into forced labor he would say like to the court okay I'll p- I'll pay the fine for My sharecropper, and in return, they'll sign this contract where they'll agree to be to give me free labor for X amount of time to reimburse me for the for the fine. And so the black people would be trapped into working for nothing. And oftentimes, those contracts also included lines where uh, the landlord could resell them or could uh, could whip them as as slaves or chain them as slaves. So it was it was very literally like a reimposition of slavery onto millions of, uh, I mean, there were one to 200,000 uh, black people in the South were uh, pulled into convict leasing, um, which was, I mean, think about this. There was two million black men who, had, when slavery ended at the Civil War, two million black men, one to 200,000 were the num- was the number of black men who were pulled into convict leasing. So that's like almost, I mean, that's like five to 10% of the population I mean that's like a huge number, but then also that doesn't even count the the way that like other people were pulled into forced labor through through the threat.
0: And so you have these overlapping lapping systems because we have uh, slavery, which we know didn't end when slavery was supposed to and went on for some for decades after, even after you know Juneteenth. And then we have convict leasing, we have uh, sharecropping, and we have. Um, mass incarceration. So you have all of these overlapping, overlapping systems that were dependent, um, or overlapping dishonest, uh, dishonest uh, systems and oppressive systems that were dependent upon the oppressors being honest. In which we know, and we know that you know there was a lot of dishonesty because the whole point um, was to keep people enslaved and keep people in debt. And um, indebted um, to the oppressor
2: mm-hmm. Yeah And I mean so one of the effects Ongoing effects of convict leasing Is also just the, the concept of black criminality Came about through convict leasing So black people all throughout the south Were charged with all kinds of crimes In order to resell them as convicts To to various mines or industrial operations and so then sociologists started to see like, wow, a third of the crimes being committed throughout the nation are committed by black people and they're a, a subset of the population. It must be that black people are more criminal. And then you had white people who just had like a financial incentive to think of black people as criminal or to be okay with that. You had white juries all throughout the South that had like a financial incentive and a cultural stake in black criminality and seeing black people as criminal because that's how they were able to you know fund their governments that's how they were able to build their roads and not have to do that backbreaking work themselves and they some of them were stakeholders stockholders in you know the steel companies that were were making all this money and if you own stock in that and you know that they're it's convict labor that that's paying for your dividends then you're seeing black people as criminal. And that, even after convict leasing ended, that legacy has continued.
0: Well, and the thing is, is that most white people will say, or many white people will say, well, if it's not happening now, but at some point you have to stop asking or stop saying it's not happening now and wonder why these things even happen at all in a so-called civilized culture that was supposedly started on you know founded on christian uh principles so we have a country that we want to idealize and you know we want um people to feel uh a sense of pride and patriotism towards a country that in, like that implemented or instituted systems to repeatedly um because it's not just about slavery even though from christians To kidnap a person, the Bible even says, the scriptures even say about kidnapping people and the the heinous things that were done to black people, but then the continued campaign, again, of overlapping systems that further oppressed into my parents' generation and even in my generation, um, when we're talking about redlining, at some point, white America has got to grapple with uh, the truth that black people were oppressed. And, I, you know, as we're dealing with right now, um, the government is trying to do this campaign against what, what they call, you know, critical race theory and um, revise history in schools and start this campaign against... Um, Anybody operating in a in a in a sense of self awareness, like Black history, the truth of Black history, the truth of American history, um, there's just this campaign that's coming from the very top, um, just labeling it as unpatriotic and false and. And, I mean, we have this history that a lot of people don't even know, and there are so many receipts. There's so much documentation because not only was this hateful stuff happening, but it was very well documented. There were books written. There were letters written. This is how people primarily corresponded with each other is through letters. So you have all this documentation, and you have even in the census records, you have all of this stuff that's right here in plain sight, and, and to suggest that black people we're just making things up just because a few of us or a percentage of us can actually somehow miraculously get ahead um of this system. but we gotta we gotta grapple with, yes, yes, it does impact you. I can't tell you how many white people I know like that are older than me that t- have told me stories about the black mammies. Oh, you remind me of you know. Roberta, and she was my black mammy. I mean, just the craziest crap that people will say. Or they will tell white people remembering stories um, that they remember, like in some nostalgic, you know, oh, those were the days since. And as they are sharing these stories with me, I'm clearly seeing the oppressive system, like, that their family got to benefit from. I've heard this from... I, I hear this all the time for older from older white people that want to go down memory lane and that, you know, seeing my black skin has triggered some memory of some black person in their life that their family oppressed. This is not just something that, you know, happened a long time ago. This is something that has happened and is continuing to happen. And if we claim to be Christians it is our job to one like if we if we talk about wanting to uh get to the bottom of and we're talking to Christians right now but if you 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 want to get to the heart of the scripture like all the time that we spend to find out the truth of the scriptures and to 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 label things as theologically sound and biblically accurate how 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 then can we just throw away history and not want to get to the truth of the of, of actual history, which history and the Bible, like the bible is is the most historical document that 's ever been written I mean people take the the Bible and they go even non believing people will take the Bible and go on archaeological digs and the Bible is historically accurate it 's not just a bunch of fairy tales it 's a story it 's a book of of, of of accounts that is historically a- accurate. Um, you know even Jesus's death on the cross like like there are are uh, key witnesses that write about the account. There are people who are outside of Christianity that write about that have written about Jesus's death and even his resurrection. And so then we want to take the actual history of America and revise it and deny it and make it like it was something that happened. You know, thousands upon thousands of years ago, when it happened, up through my parents' generation into my generation, and we're still feeling the ripples of that now. And we haven't dealt with the heinous, horrible, the, like the horror and the and the, the 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 terror of it all. We still haven't dealt with that. We still haven't made it right. And we're still seeing blood being poured out in the streets. Like Christians, how do we reconcile that? How in the world can you reconcile that? That's the that's the question. Like we're spouting spouting off all this historical stuff, the stu- stuff that you can go to the library and 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 see and read for yourselves. What are we going to do about it?
1: Mm. And I, you you hit on something. I want to make sure that we don't you know, overlook this too quickly, but I think it's important to realize that you can still love America. It is not bad to love America. I think there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of things in this country and, and not even comparing it to other countries. Cause I think a lot of people are going, well, you can look at, you know, there's countries where they'll just kill you for anything, and it's like, let's just take all the other countries out. There's a lot of great things about America. and But I, I just don't know, and Garen, maybe you can help speak to this, but it's like you can actually love America by knowing her past. And that's not, just just revealing someone's past doesn't mean you don't like them mm-hmm. or that you don't even appreciate them. Um, and, and honestly, I think there's probably, a, there's like this weird U-shaped graph where you actually probably get more appreciation in, in some ways of knowing, uh, more appre- more appreciation of somebody by knowing more of their past. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't want to overlook that of like, just because, um, you know, America, the, the, you know, just learning what actually happened, what Katina said, go to your library, read the books, there's receipts, just, it, it was not founded on Christian principles. There, it just wasn't. And so it's just important to know that you can say that and not hate America. Like that's not what we're saying when we're talking about these things. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, convict lease, I mean, this is something I, I mean, I don't know until you're talking about, I don't really know much about it. Like in, in a lot of ways, even what you said, it, it's almost worse than enslaving people. And I think that you can easily go, man, just gosh, America's so bad. Um, you know, because we did these things, and it's like what what we're not saying is America is the worst country in the world. Um, that there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Of just loving something and confronting it versus loving something and not and pretending like everything was great.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think patriotism, in as far as it's like a method for us to love others who God has put us in the same country with. Is like a great thing because it can be a vehicle for love and camaraderie with other Americans. So like, if you're traveling the world, and I've done this like, in another country, I see an American. It's like automatically there's some kind of like connection and affinity there, um, and and like as much as patriotism is a vehicle for love, that's a good thing. But when it becomes a reason why you become defensive and don't want to know the bad things that America has done and deal with those honestly. Then it's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, if patriotism is like deliberately blinding yourself to America's past flaws, and, and that like affects you, it affects how you interpret the world today. Like, if you, if you, it's like you said last week, Brad, uh, that, or maybe this is two episodes ago, that either you have to think that black people are just inherently less smart or inferior or you have to recognize that there are systems in place that have like oppressed black people throughout American history. And so like w- knowing the history is very relevant to how you interpret the state of black people in America today. And like, if you don't know about redlining, then you see ghettos and you think like, well, oh, they're, they're poor because of just like inherent black criminality. But then you're, drawing the wrong conclusion because you've not been willing to like deal honestly with the history and once you deal with it then it's like a whole different picture appears and it makes it apparent what's needed today to make America better. Um, just as far as the receipts I mean in in Alabama alone hundreds of thousands of pages of public documents from this period attest to the arrests subsequent sales, and delivery of thousands of African-Americans into mines, lumber camps, quarries, farms, and factories. And to quote uh, Douglas uh, Blackman, again, from Slavery by Another Name, he said, the South's legal system was totally corrupt. The justices of the peace found people guilty who were not guilty getting a kickback for pushing black men into slavery. If they wanted a man convicted of any particular thing, they would just find a justice of the peace who would work with them and then he talks about and documents how the the convictions of black men of crimes were not just random or sporadic but there was an uptick of convictions of black men for crimes anytime uh, the the cotton picking season was coming up or whenever there was a labor recruiter who was about to come to town looking to buy any, at least out any convicts, then local jurisdictions would all of a sudden find crimes to charge black people with. And I mean, this this goes into the idea of black criminality, of like justice and how our justice system is or isn't fair. I mean, this this is astounding. from From the end of Reconstruction to 1966 there was exactly one white person who was convicted of first-degree murder of a black person. Hmm. Only one. There were like 10,000 lynchings during that time. And that's just the public lynchings. That's not all the murders. Yeah. That's not all the people that, that disappeared we or were yeah, killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one conviction so, I mean, just think how the degree to which the American court system, especially in the South, but all throughout America, did not protect black people is like, I mean, that's just like an astounding statistic that shows it. And that's up to 1966. That's like, that's really contemporary with like our lives. like people from then were alive today. Um, and And so then if you know that, then all of a sudden, facts today all white juries today are still used to convict black people like it's still a common strategy that um, prosecuting attorneys will use their peremptory strikes to remove all black people from juries and all white juries statistically are 16% more likely to convict a black defendant of a crime than a jury that has even one black person on it yeah and that's something that continues to today And if you don't know the history, then you don't see how you have inherited some of these biases that have passed down. And and once you start to see the history, you can see them all throughout today. And yeah, they're like tamped down a little bit today, but it's like some of the same dynamics, this like assumption of black criminality that existed back then so clearly that once, you re- once you recognize it in history, you can see how it filtered into our, our worldview today.
1: And that's a good point because it's something we were even discussing earlier today before recording is the idea that um, there are people that will say, um, even in the case of like Brianna Taylor, um, and there's even still kind of some still stuff going on with that case. It doesn't even seem to be completely over at this right. point. Right. But like there are people that point to that and go, well, you know, there was a jury, there was a grand jury and they didn't indict anybody. And so was, they'll say things like, well, was justice not served? And it's the idea that, well, they went through our justice system and, um, and our justice system said that they're not guilty. And so that means that they're not guilty. And can you speak to that? Because I wrestle with that because I, I see our system as being so messed up. Uh, even that statistic you said, one white person getting, would we look back then and go would that same person who would say, well, was justice not served? Would they say that 55 years ago when this happened? Like there's this idea that a lot of white people will just think that our system is perfect and our system is outside of you know, being affected by enslavement convict leasing and that it's this almost perfect third-party judge to to tell people whether or not they're guilty.
0: Well, and they'll even say, well, our system is imperfect, but... And I think that's the more dangerous thing than even saying that it's perfect, because saying it's perfect, we know is a lie. But to say it's imperfect, we don't always get it right. But that word, but, encompasses so much blood, and so many lives impacted and america is willing to take make you know to hang their hat on that big but that that's a big but like that's a big those three letters encompass so much death and trauma and terror and like it, it and 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 america's okay with that because occasionally it gets it right and that makes the justice system that's been created to oppress black and brown people that make because it's getting better <laughs> that's another word like that makes it okay and so it's more dangerous that knowing that it's not perfect but being but pointing to a handful of cases where justice was kind of served and just omitting i mean cuz you're talking about one person being convicted Emmett Till's murderers weren't convicted, and he was a fourteen-year-old child. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's, there's children that were taken, that were um, taken to the gas chambers in prison during that time. No one, like, there, prison systems that, that, that um, killed children in the so-called name of justice. And one person, I mean, that's crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I even think even the. The Back the Blue rally that we went to I mean we heard it over and over Are there bad apples? Yes there are bad apples I mean I think one person even gave us a st- Well it's like one in a dozen And I think like a one in a dozen In our police department Is not a good percentage yeah. Of having bad I would even right. say she- I- Maybe if that person even If we actually said hey you just said one in a dozen Just you know that means this percent Would you be happy with the that percentage of police Being bad, bad apples. apples And, I- and I- it's this idea that um, you know, we want justice, but it 's like I think I wrestle with like how do we how do we get justice through uh everything that has happened since sixteen nineteen how do we get just it 's such a huge complex problem, and we 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 can 't even get get past the you know the system is there's some there 's something the system is bad
2: mm-hmm. um yeah yeah i mean uh, that is a big question. And it's not something that, like, we can fully answer here. But I think for sure we need to have massive change. And, like, that should be something that we can all get on board with. And, like, honestly, I'm I'm just going to...
0: Well, and we need to start by telling the truth. That's the thing. We need to start with integrity and honesty and tell the truth about what happened and what's happened and what's happening. I think like we can't just start tearing down systems until we acknowledge you know um the truth of it and mm-hmm. that's where america has just refused to start i mean just imagine 1866 and black people crying out for justice and well we freed y'all and then <laughs> i mean move a, a few few years later and black people are trying to vote and they're killing you know they're they're executing voters people who are trying to vote, but we free, like, just, you know, and then redlining, but we don't have, you know, y'all can drink from the same water fountain. It's crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm just going to, like, come out, like, I I don't need you as the listener to be at a point where you agree with me on this, but I'm just going to, like, put a flag down and say, like, for me, there's no question that some form of reparations are needed. And I think people argue against that and say, like, first of all, they'll say like, well, well, like this happened way back in like hundreds of years ago. How does this, why is it fair for me to pay? But just realize, I mean, some of this is super recent and it goes all the way through today. Like we talked about redlining, like that's the, the wealth gap that exists today is because black people weren't allowed to buy homes in the suburbs. And that continues through today. And then like enslavement, didn't end until World War II and people from that are, like, people are alive today um, who inherited. So, first of all, just to realize it's a way more recent thing and also I think the government um, is responsible for having deprived black people of their rights all throughout this area. It was like, governments that were leasing comics out it was state governments it was local governments it was the federal government that was uh forbidding mortgages to black people and not allowing suburbs to sell homes to black people and making sure they had restrictions in place and uh, um like like residential covenants in place where nobody could sell to black people and so the federal government is responsible for the the harm and the damage and i think like we are not fully like the like for me it's like well i don't like my story in this world is not primarily about me having as much money as possible like if that if that were the case then like we have a financial bribe on ourselves to not want reparations as white people because it's like it's going to cost something to create a world that's actually undoes some of the harm that has been inherited into today And and reparations, I think a lot of people just think of reparations as like monetary transfer. And I don't think that, like, I think that's a lot more sticky, whether reparations comes in that form, or I think a lot of reparations could happen just through the government giving favorable interest rates to black people who weren't allowed to buy homes before so that they have the ability to buy homes that they couldn't buy. Or the government funding inner city education in a way that's like, just and fair and actually gives children growing up in these previously redlined districts access to the education and and the help they need. Or like giving loans to black entrepreneurs so that they can start businesses because they have been discriminated against and not able to start businesses or their businesses were firebombed or closed down throughout much of history. Uh, like there's a lot of things that we need to actively be doing as a society in order to say that we're like actually repentant. And I think for for Christians, I don't see how we could not be on board with that. If we really say like we live in this narrative that's like about God's kingdom coming and bringing justice for the, you know, like all throughout the Old Testament, there's pages and pages of verses about um, justice for the poor and the immigrants and the uh, the weak and the least of the loving, the least of these, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Like, how can we not get behind a system that's like does, like seeking to give every God-given, uh, every image-bearer the potential to pursue dreams and realize who God made and designed them to be? And, and right have now, dignity. Yeah, right now, like American poverty I mean, put it this way, it's hurting all of us. Like, how many Einsteins and Mozarts and Steve Jobs do we not have because they were born into American poverty with black skin and didn't have access to equal education or a computer or a piano?
0: Or their patents were stolen or their, you know, their work was, uh, the credit for their work was taken. Yeah. And so I just, are you. Because I, I have a few things you, that I'm going to read. I want to hear well, what you say. Well, you know, and I want white people to think about this. Black people, you know, when we're talking about rape, reparations, we're talking about black people being paid back <laughs> for the taxes that we paid. You know, to be oppressed, black people were paying taxes. Black, you know, and black people were being were paying with their bodies with lifelong inherited uh, slavery and servitude. And like we were paying taxes to be oppressed. Black people paid money into systems that were upheld to oppress them. Black people paid taxes and money um, and engaged in commerce that upheld officials that that they couldn't vote for because of uh, voter suppression laws. And, you know, I'm just, I, I love Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, and she died five years after I was born. Fannie Lou Hamer was an activist in Mississippi. She was a sharecropper, and, and you need to look Fannie Lou Hamer up. She suffered abuse under the sharecropping system. She was sexually assaulted assaulted under white supremacy. Her daughter died because the hospital, the local hospital, refused to care for her daughter because Fannie was an activist during the civil rights movement. Fannie was imprisoned um, and beaten almost to death for trying to vote. She never fully recovered from that beating. I mean and she was sexually assault, assaulted during that beating. And she has she she I'm going to quote her because I feel like she she says it best. She said you see the flag is drenched. She says drenched. But the word is drenched but she says drenched and I love the way she says it. She said the flag is drenched with our blood because you see so many of our ancestors was killed because we never accepted slavery. We had to live on it. We had to live under it, but we never wanted it. So we know that this flag is drenched with our blood. So what the young people are saying now, give us a chance to be young men, respected as a man, as we know this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country. And if we don't have it, you ain't going to have it either because we going to tear it up. That's what the people are saying. And people ought to understand that. I don't see why they don't understand that. They know what they've done to us. All across this country, they know what they've done to us. This country is desperately sick. And man, it's on the critical list. I really don't know where we go from here. I think that says it all, and that was said in 1968, and it still applies in 2020.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we've discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. We want to say thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us for $5 a month. You are able to vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. You can check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Next episode, we will be interviewing one of our friends, Adam Thomason. We'll leave you with this caption from a photo that shows dozens of black children standing in a field with farming instruments in hand. The caption reads, Black orphaned children and juvenile offenders could be bought to serve as laborers for white planters in many southern states from 1865 until the 1940s.